6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Acts of the Apostles. Philip is sent by God down to the Jerusalem to Gaza road. There's a road from Jerusalem down to Gaza. And Philip is pulled out of this revival and sent down there to meet, of all people, an Ethiopian treasurer. Uh, he is on his way home confused. He apparently has gone to Jerusalem to worship the Messiah. Apparently finds out he's been killed, whatever, he's confused. He's on his way home now confused. And we have this interesting incident where Philip approaches him and says, Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, unless somebody helps me? And it turns out he's reading from Isaiah 53, and I'm going to suggest 52 and 53 for some reasons. To really understand what's going on here, you should be acquaint yourself with some of the theories about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant disappeared sometime after the Babylonian captivity. It seems to have disappeared from uh, history. There are about six different theories as to what happened and where it is. They're all conjectural. But the most interesting one is one that has been disregarded by many scholars because it, it's accompanied with some non-biblical legends. To look at history here a little bit, see, well, let me back up. We're going to talk about, is it possible that the Ark of the Covenant could be down in Ethiopia? The Ethiopians believe that they're guarding a relic that they are destined to present to the Messiah on Mount Zion. That's guarded as, to the present day in a, in a special compound in, in Aksum. They believe the way it got there is a way that you can dispute biblically, and so most people dismiss the fact that what they have is really the ark. What they overlook is they may have the relic by a path that they didn't understand. They have a different legend they believe, and I won't go into that here. We do know from 2 Kings 21 that Manasseh, who took over after Hezekiah, tried to destroy Judaism. He made reading the Torah, uh, he tried to destroy all copies of the Torah. Reading it was a capital crime. He tried to destroy Judaism from end to end. During that time, the Levites, to protect the Ark of the Covenant, got it out of the temple, out of town, out of the country. And apparently they sought protection under Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. After Manasseh comes Josiah, a young guy who discovers an overlooked copy of the Torah, reads it, and realizes how far they've fallen. So he institutes a whole revival, and he instructs the Levites to return the ark to Israel, in fact, to the temple, to the Holy of Holies. It doesn't say they complied. He just asserts that they should. A few verses later, this is all in 2 Chronicles 35, a few verses later, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt is taking up arms against the Assyrian Empire, which apparently is decaying and it's going to fall in a few more years. Josiah takes up arms against Pharaoh Necho. That 
puzzles any reader, but it also puzzles Pharaoh Necho. He says, what are you doing? I'm doing what God told me to do. What most people don't realize is that Pharaoh Necho was an Ethiopian. He was the, the 25th, what's called the Ethiopian dynasty. Well, he, uh, Josiah goes against him anyway and gets killed. But from that point on, there is a traceable record of a relic of some kind. The tabernacle was set up on Elephantine Island, which, which, which at that time was the capital of Egypt. And for two centuries, the tabernacle was there. The ark is transferred from Elephantine Island to, a, to Tanakirkus Island, which is a, on Lake Tana in Ethiopia. And it stays there for eight centuries. In fact, there are even records in the Ethiopian Bible of Joseph and Mary and the infant, Jesus, visiting Tanakirkus Island when they were down there taking refuge from, from Herod. But anyway, they, after eight centuries of Tanakirkus Island, it's transferred to Aksum where it, stay, where it is today. So from about 642 B.C., Elephantine Island, Egypt. At 420 B.C., it tra transfers to Tanakirkus Island in Ethiopia. It's destined, and, it's, and now it's at Aksum, and it's destined to be presented to the Messiah on Mount Zion, according to Isaiah 18 and Zephaniah 3.10 and other passages. Now, we don't know if the relic they're guarding is the Ark of the Covenant, but the more we've studied, the more it looks like it could very well be, and there, there's, a, there's a whole story behind that. I encourage you to dig out on your own and come to your own conclusions. But the question was, why was the Ethiopian treasure on a mission? It's our conjecture that he was there to check out, is it time to deliver the Ark of the Covenant to the Messiah? He gets to Jerusalem, discovers the Messiah is apparently killed. He's confused. On his way home, Philip was supernaturally dispatched to explain to him Isaiah 53, which essentially says that the Messiah is destined to return. So I think he went back to Queen Candace and said, not yet. And they've been guarding it ever since. Uh, it moved from Tanakirkus Island to uh, Aksum, e Ethiopia, and. 330 A.D., and uh, they celebrate it every year. They don't actually bring it out. They bring out a ceremonial relic for ceremonial purposes, but each January, we, well, not everyone, but we try to go down there in January and join them. It's interesting to see, it's interesting to stand on an island, stand on a hill, surrounded by tens of thousands of Levites in white sheets, singing and praying ecstatically, round the clock for two days prior and during the two days of Timcat, celebrating, get this, the baptism of Jesus Christ. They have a ceremony that goes down to the water and comes back, takes two days. It's uh, very colorful, very interesting, but try to integrate that. Tens of thousands of Levites celebrating the baptism of Christ. I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, anyway, moving on. So uh, anyway, the, the Ethiopian treasurer encounters Philip. He interprets the scripture for him. He says, Jesus, there's some water. Can I, there, here's some water. Can I not be baptized? Certainly you can. So he baptized him, and he goes on to report to Queen Candace. So uh, Peter, meanwhile, travels north, preaching in every town. Peter settles in Caesarea with wife and daughter. Stephen, let's pick up uh, how Antioch becomes important. Stephen is martyred in the Jerusalem. After he's martyred, believers are scattered throughout the world. Some travel up to Antioch. 
Now I want to warn you, there are two Antiochs. The main one is the one we're looking at here. The Antioch, we could call it the Antioch of Syria. There's another one we're going to encounter up in Galatia that's less important. This is the Antioch that's important. It becomes the strategic center of the Gentile outreach of the church. In chapter 11, they traveled to Antioch and, and initially preached to Jews only. But some of these come from Cyprus, some from North Africa, and they preach to Gentiles. So this is the beginning of the Gentile conversions. Now the Jerusalem church sends Barnabas, a trusted leader, to find out what's going on up in Antioch. And when he gets up there, he collects Saul from Tarsus. He had spent some time in Tarsus. They stay to teach for uh, several years. Now, um, the strength of the church in Antioch that raises money to uh, assist, to relieve the uh, church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is technically, James is the head of it, and they're sort of the leaders. At the same time, they're poor. They have financial needs. Antioch is stronger and sends relief money there. There's many records there where Paul encourages them to, to send money to the, to the church in Jerusalem. From Antioch, they, not only do they support the church in Jerusalem financially, but they also send missionaries to foreign countries. So it becomes a major, major center for the last half of the book of Acts, for sure. Very cosmopolitan countries. It's one of the most important uh, cities in the Roman Empire. And it's interesting to see the cross-section of these cosmopolitan people that God is using. Barnabas was a Jew from Cyprus. Simeon, also called uh, Simeon the Black, probably from Africa thus. Uh, Lucius was a Cyrene from North African city. Manain was a, uh, a foster brother to Herod Antipas, obviously of, of influence. And uh, we have this interesting character by the name of Saul, who was a Jew from Roman Tarsus. He later would become Paul the Apostle. Interesting cross-section of people, just like you and me, all different kinds. Well, let's shift now. We talked about Philip. Let's talk about the Acts of Peter. On Pentecost, he preaches, of course, and many become believers. Uh, he heals a lame man. He's arrested with John and, and warned not to preach, but of course that does no good. <laughs> Peter and John follow Philip into Samaria, and many believe there. I've mentioned that before. Peter then goes to Lydia and Joppa to raise Dorcas from death. Miracles going a long way. Then we get into this interesting issue with Cornelius. He's a centurion. You know, it's interesting in the book of Acts and in the Gospel of Luke, centurions are always good guys. It's very fascinating. You'll also notice when you read Luke and Acts is that there's always an emphasis there that the uprisings, the trouble, was always the Jewish leadership reacting to the Christians. All through the book of Acts, the persecution didn't come from the Romans. It came from the Jewish leadership. The Roman oppression came later, and Nero and much later. But in any case, here we have Cornelius. He has a vision in Caesarea, that's where he's based, the major headquarters for the Roman activity was Caesarea, not Jerusalem. They were in Jerusalem only for holidays. Pilate was in Jerusalem during Passover because it was a holiday. Normally he would have his, his headquarters was in Caesarea. Anyway, so he has a vision and he sends for Peter who's down in Joppa. Well, while this is going on, Peter down in Joppa has a vision. So he goes to Caesarea. And this is where we have this strange vision where this sheet comes down with all the non-kosher food in it. 
and rise and eat. And he wouldn't eat because it was Jewish. This is non-kosher stuff. And he says, don't condemn what I have blessed. So it, 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 that happens three times. The, the, the message it gets across to Peter is that all things are lawful. Opening the door uh, to the Gentile believers. Major thing in Acts 10. So he re Peter reports to the Jerusalem church, who, who accept because of all this, they accept the fact that the gospel is for Gentiles also, not just Jews. This starts, this leads to a whole other set of issues that are going to come to head in chapter 15 of Acts. But at this point, there are Gentiles that are accepting Christ and becoming what you and I would consider what we would call Christians. Peter's arrested and he's miraculously released and so forth. There's many of these episodes going. And he ultimately will testify at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and we'll get there. The rest of Peter's work, we don't know much about. We know that he meets Paul in Antioch. There's evidence that he was in Corinth at one time. He wrote his first letter. First Peter was written from Babylon. Now, it's very interesting. Uh, there are many people that believe that Babylon is a code for the, book, for the city of Rome. That's utter foolishness. Babylon was a major Jewish center. He wrote, he wrote the, his first epistle from Babylon. The Babylonian Talmud came from Babylon. Babylon in those days was a major Jewish center. It was no longer a dominant imperial town like it had centuries earlier, but it's still there with, as a major center. Peter was executed in Rome just as the Lord had predicted. And Mark wrote his gospel in Rome just after Peter's death. The, he, he, he acts somewhat as a, as a succotor, an amanuensis for Peter. So when you read the Gospel of Mark, it's really, a, it's really almost Peter's perspective. Peter was a guy of action, not words. And uh, Mark's Gospel is like a shooting script. It includes details. When they sit on the grass, it's green grass, etc. If you watch, it's a very brief, tight little Gospel. Actually, it would be longer than Matthew if, you, if, you, if Matthew hadn't included all the discourses. Matthew included the discourses because he took shorthand. But uh, let's get to pick up this Damascus Road event. Very, very important thing. Saul was a young... Uh, 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 he spent his early years in Tarsus. He was a, a born a Roman citizen, raised in Tarsus. Tarsus was a very important Roman city. It was also the seat of a uh, famous university, higher in reputation than any of the other universities, even Athens or Alexandria uh, were the only other ones that existed. But Tarsus was a top intellectual center. He was taken to Jerusalem as a young boy and educated by, of all people, Gamaliel himself. Gamaliel is probably the most venerated you know, Jewish teacher at that time. So he became a Pharisee, very well taught in both Greek culture and uh, Hebrew culture. And of course, when Stephen is stoned to death for his faith, Saul's the guy holding the coats of the guys throwing the stones. And he becomes a violent persecutor of the church. He's given uh, letters of authority to imprisoned Christians. And he even travels to foreign cities to root them out. Now, he's on the road to Damascus, on the way there. And he's confronted by guess who? Jesus Christ. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He's told then to go, when he gets to Damascus, to check out with this guy Ananias. He's blinded in the meantime. 
And uh, when he gets to Ananias, his blindness is healed. And he's baptized there as a Christian. Now, this also leads to some speculation. We do know that Paul ha had some medical afflictions. We also have hints in his letters that they had something to do with his eyes. So even though his blindness was healed, he apparently did suffer some optical impairment here. Or, and, and apparently it was un, very un, uh, non-cosmetic. But in any case, he has this incredible experience where he now is uh, uh, called by the Lord Jesus Christ to serve him. He stays in Damascus. While there, he, uh, during the Damascus period, he also spends about three years in the Arabian desert and then returns to Damascus. During that time, he apparently is instructed uh, directly by the Holy Spirit and so forth. Now, he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. So three years after his conversion, he is now forced to flee Damascus in a basket. They lower him over a basket over the wall to, to get him out of town. That's a pattern he's going to endure a lot in his life, I guess. He goes to see Peter, and Barnabas uh, introduces Paul to these suspicious believers. You've got to understand the predicament of the believers in those days. Here's this zealot that has been persecuting, who's now coming and posing as a Christian. They think he's just a, it's just a ruse to get their names to, before they, you know, get imprisoned or something. So they had to overcome that paranoia, if you will. Barnabas, uh, uh, you know, helps them with that. He talks with Peter and James, and after two weeks, he's smuggled out of Jerusalem, but with the blessing, if you will, of uh, Peter and James. He's taken to Caesarea and then to Tarsus. And he'll be in Tarsus about ten years before Barnabas comes and uh, recruits him to come to Antioch where all the action is. In the meantime, Paul had uh, uh, visited Cilicia and Syria in some places. But he's still relatively unknown to believers in Judea. He's doing most of this up there north of Syria in a region that would be associated with Asia Minor. Barnabas finally recruits him and brings him to Antioch, because that's where all the action is. And they teach together for a year. They become good buddies. They all have a dispute that splits them up. Meanwhile, Saul, Barnabas, and Titus bring famine relief money for Judea. See, again, the churches up north are helping to support the believers down in, uh, in uh, uh, Jerusalem. Anyway, uh, the, the leadership meets privately, and they uh, acknowledge Saul's ministry uh, to the Gentiles. Now, this leads to the first missionary journey, which is the, the goal is really Gal what we would call Galatia, if you will, or, or Asia Minor. Let's take a look at the map. Saul and Barnabas set out together from Antioch, uh, and they're joined by a young man, young John Mark, rich kid, probably a little spoiled. Uh, there's all kinds of speculation that he might have been the rich young man that fled naked in the garden that night and so forth. He's, anyway, they uh, go to Cyprus. They encounter a character by the name of Bargesus who's a false prophet but a friend of the governor. He's struck blind. The governor thus becomes a believer and some other things occur. But um, then they head to Italia. Uh, uh, it's at this point, from Paphos on, that Saul starts calling himself Paul. He changes his name from Saul to Paul. It's also about this time that John Mark is not excited about getting up in Galatia. It's apparently a very rough country, and he 
fades on them and goes back to Jerusalem. Something that really upsets Paul later. It gets into a big debate with Barnabas over this. Paul preaches to both Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews are very jealous. They get very upset, and they stir up opposition. They stay quite a while. Many Jews and Gentiles become believers. But a Gentile plot against their lives forces them uh, to move on. That brings up to about uh, chapter 14. At Lystra, Paul uh, heals a cripple. They are hailed as gods that people want to worship them. Enemies arrive from Antioch and Iconium, and they're almost killed there. And uh, they flee to Derby, and many more disciples are one, and so forth. Several times here, Paul several, will be left for dead. Whether he actually died or whether he rose from the dead is a debate among some scholars. But in any case, uh, there's some, a lot of adventures here. They return back home the way they came, revisiting the churches they planted, encouraging the, these young churches. And they finally report all, they give the final report to the church in Antioch. Now this leads to Acts 15. This is a chapter that's very, very important. We obviously can't recount all the little details. You just read them. But once you understand Acts 15, a huge controversy has erupted within the church over what obligations are incumbent upon Gentile believers. You need to understand the situation. Before Christ, if you wanted to join Israel in their worship, you became a proselyte. You'd become, you, would, you would take on the obligations of becoming a Jew. You'd get circumcised and, and, and adopt all the legal requirements. The Jewish church, the, 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 all the believers, the apostles, everyone, they were all Jewish. And they took for granted that if you wanted to join the church, great, you became a Jew. And uh, they assumed you'd get circumcised and you'd have to get Mosaic law. Others said, no, they're still Gentiles. They're saved, but they're Gentiles. A big controversy to, uh, erupted here. Do they have to get circumcised? Do they have to keep the Mosaic laws and so forth? Paul and Barnabas and Peter and others came down to Jerusalem to get this whole thing resolved because by now it had become a big dispute. And uh, they give the report about uh, how they've gone to these places and people accept Christ and the Holy Spirit gets poured out, people get healed. They don't become Jewish. Peter is also there and he testifies. And I want you to uh, notice, I love the way Peter puts this in Acts 15. This is Peter speaking, he says, now, therefore, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He's in, you know, in other words, why make these Gentiles take on all the burdens of, of the Jewish laws? No, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, meaning the believers, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. <laughs> you get the inversion? <laughs> He's not saying these guys can be saved just like we are. He's saying we might be as saved as they are. <laughs> Because he's, he's doing that in the context of these miracles that they're observing as they go through in these foreign countries where people accept the Lord, they get the Holy Spirit, and, and all kinds of miraculous things happen. So that's what, he's, that's what he's arguing. But what most people who study this chapter miss is there are two issues here. The main issue that we focus on is, gee, does a j j j uh, believer have to become a Jew to be saved? And the answer, of course, no. But there's another problem. What must a Gentile do to be saved? He's going to answer that, of course. 
But the other question is, what's to become of Israel? See, the implied question, the other flip side of that question is, if a believer, a Gentile, becomes, uh, does not have to become a Jew to be saved, what was this all for? All of our history, all of these laws, all of these ordinances, the priesthood, uh, all the, you know, the temple. Is this all now over? Is it gone? That's, that's their issue. And James a answers, uh, James is clear to the leader of the church in uh, Jerusalem. He says, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written, quote, and he's now quoting, it happens from Amos chapter 9. He says, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. And he goes on. In other words, God is going to call out a people for his name out of the Gentiles. And once that's done, he will then return and build the tabernacle and do all these other things. Do you follow me? So the point, what the main point here is, well, two points. That a believer does not have to become a Jew to be in Christ. He's grafted in by the very fact that he's in Christ. But uh, the second thing is, is that God is not through with Israel. Israel has a destiny after the church is complete. And that's what it's emphasizing. Very important point that most churches today miss. Do your own study, come to your own conclusions. The resolution that James publishes, the Gentiles should abstain from idols, abstain from fornication, and abstain from things strangled in blood. There, you know, that's a hygienic thing. You know, say, other than that, fine. There's no comment here about circumcision. There's no comment here about keeping the Sabbath. That doesn't mean those aren't good things to do. It means they're not required. See, that's the point. There's a big difference. There's no commitment to no, the ceremonial laws are, are, are not laid on them for that. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.